Welcome to the second season of the Current Cucurbit podcast series. I'm your host, Mark Gleason. I'm a plant pathologist at Iowa State University. I'm also the leader of a USDA-funded research and outreach project focusing on finding better ways to protect organic cucurbit crops, especially muskmelon and acorn squash, against the triple threats of diseases, pest insects, and weeds. The project includes three states, Iowa, New York, and Kentucky. Uh, Welcome to the Current Cucurbit podcast series. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Williams, who is a horticulturist at University of Kentucky, and he's also the department chair in the Department of Horticulture at University of Kentucky. And uh, we're very fortunate to have Mark here because he's deeply experienced in uh, organic agriculture. And that's, of course, the subject of um, uh, the kind of research we're doing in this project. So uh, maybe you just share a little bit how you got to where you are, Mark, so people can get oriented on you. Sure, sure. Well, I'm a native Kentuckian, and I went to the University of Kentucky uh, for my undergraduate degree, and then uh, did my graduate program in California, and really got uh, kind of exposed to a different way of thinking about agriculture when I was living in California. And I came back in uh, as faculty in 2001 in the Department of Horticulture at UK. And as I was looking to kind of establish my career, my career originally started out in weed science. And uh, at that time, there was very little organic agriculture research at the University of Kentucky. And I'd had these experiences and then a really unique thing happened in Kentucky. And that is that uh, the the kind of the price stabilization program for one of our main crops in agriculture, tobacco, ended in 2003. And as part of that, there was kind of a a, a awareness that uh, kind of new avenues of research were needed. And so there were some grant programs that were set up at the USDA, and then also some internal uh, university funding to to focus on uh, research for guiding former tobacco farmers into Uh new crops, new crop alternatives, and new cropping systems. And so we used that opportunity to get some funding to do our our original work. 2004 was when we first started doing kind of systems level work on organic crops. So we started pretty humbly with uh, peppers, and we looked at kind of a, from a kind of an ecosystem's approach of what would be possible to grow organic peppers as a viable kind of specialty crop for former tobacco growers Mm -hmm. because they had a lot of the equipment and a lot of the scale and a lot of the things that were similar uh, between these crops and so that was the very beginning is we just started with the single crop and doing kind of a systems approach everything from you know fertility to weeds to insects to disease to you know marketing the whole kind of uh, view of it and then it just expanded over time from there. I did not know the story that you'd started with peppers. I, I think I remember dimly that you had told me earlier that uh, there was a connection with the cessation of the of the uh, t- tobacco program. But that, yeah, that's a, you know, you, you you all really seized that opportunity by the horns. We tried, yeah, and you know, it started as as a grant funded research program, and we we have we have uh, five farms that University of Kentucky College of Agriculture, Food and Environment uh, has around our state. One of them is managed by a department, and that's managed by the Department of Horticulture. And it's called the Horticulture Research Farm. It's about 100 acres, and it was bought in the 1950s. And uh, early on, we needed a place to do certified organic research. And so in 2003, actually, we, st- we set aside a small amount of that farm to get transitioned over a three-year period into, uh, you know, an organic unit. And it started real humbly, like at, like at a half acre for the original research projects. And now it's up to 30 acres and we've been in production for a long time now, ever since then, and it's just grown. And we, we still do grant funded research, but it's everything from applied research to very, you know, still kind of basic science. 
but we also set up a farming training program. It's a, an apprenticeship. And so we were allowed 15 years ago to set up a community supported agriculture marketing system. That's now expanded into farmers markets and wow. CSA, CSAs throughout the year and, and all kinds of different, different ways that we generate funding. And it's a self-supported farming system that we teach students and then work with area farmers. So some of the ideas that we see or problems that we see on that, then we spin off into research. And in fact, that's how I got into this cucurbit stuff. We are learned early on that uh, cucurbits were very difficult to grow in Kentucky, very, very difficult. And then from our CSA efforts, we decided to try to do research. And that's when I met you, Mark, a long time ago. So long ago now that I can't even remember the exact year. But that, that, that was from an example of you know, instead of working with an area farm, having a farm within a university farm and then seeing what, it, you know, limitations were and trying to then write grants and, and get funding to solve those problems. So that's really how it all started. Great. Thanks, Mark. That, that background is really, you know, impressive and, and inspiring because I think UK has got one of the best organic horticulture programs I know of. I mean, and, and particularly when you bring in the, uh, the idea of, uh, uh, these these internships and the training and that, that, that that's a, that's a you know really really well integrated program really impressive so I Thank hope you. you give you I hope you all pat yourself on the back about that occasionally. Uh, it's, a, it's a team <laughs> effort and lots of ups and downs like any kind of situation like this but yeah it's been a real gratifying experience to be part of. Uh -huh. You mentioned weed control as you know uh, what what kind of was your entree into some of this area your training in weed control um, and uh, so. In this project that we're that we're collaborating on now, uh, we're using these mesotunnel systems, which I believe the idea came from you, Mark. Although you brought it into the project, I know you it, got it from somebody else, but you were the origin of that. Um, and trying to figure out how to how to control weeds in between these rows um, that are covered by fabric. And um, you know, we've tried a lot of things, and you have too. And uh, one of the things we've been looking at in recent years is this. Uh, grass called teff and um, so you want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, how you how teff kind of came on your radar and and uh, how, how you kind of recognize its potential as a weed control sure yeah well you know i think the horticulture research farm in lexington actually has some significance when we think worldwide in agriculture and 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 interestingly it was the the kind of the birthplace of using plastic in agriculture plastic culture so raised beds covered in black plastic. There was a faculty member in the 1950s. His name was Emery Emmert. Our, our farm road is named after him. And he was kind of considered the father of plastic culture use. And that's everything from raised beds covered in plastic all the way to you know, low tunnels, high tunnels. So there was a history at our farm of using plastic for wow. vegetable production. In fact, when I came on the farm in 2001, almost everything we did in veg was, was on raised beds covered in black plastic with very, you know, with drip tape under the plastic. So that's a very common system. And when we started doing that in our organic section, that's what we started with. We did ex almost exclusively plastic, plastic culture, you know, production of, of crops. And what I, as I started thinking about, well, how can we make this system more sustainable? What we were doing in, in a conventional context is doing raised beds and then spraying herbicides, either pre-emergent or pre-emergent, post-emergent combinations. Uh, in between the beds to keep bare ground in between the beds. And that bothered me as an organic grower. I was doing conventional and organic and it bothered me because the alternative, you know, oftentimes for people when they move into organic, you think input replacements. Like if this is what you use in conventional, then we have to have an organic counterpart to it. But when it gets to uh -huh. weeds, when it gets to weeds, 
that's really not possible. You have to have like an integrated approach to it. There's not one thing that's going to replace a great herbicide in organic. And so you have to take this systems level approach. And so to maintain bare ground in between plastic became quite an issue. And in particular, how to control weeds on like the edges of the beds, the shoulders where the soils mounted up on the plastic became a real challenge. And so we went down a path. We spent several years on this developing kind of custom cultivators to cultivate that space in between the beds. And we eventually figured out how to take old historic tractors from Kentucky that were used in tobacco, modify them, and we could have this, uh, you know, uh, cultivating tractor that straddled the bed and cultivated between the beds. So we went down this path of thinking about cultivation for weed control. But then when you combine insect control, and in this case, disease and insect control from this insect, this disease, uh, this insect vectored, you have to think more holistically. And since we couldn't cultivate over the tops of the hoops that we were using to control insects, we had to come up with an alternative. And also in this path, it started to really bother us that we were doing repeat cultivation for weed control to keep ground bare. Mm. And so that sent us down a path of thinking, could we make the system more sustainable by instead of using steel and gasoline or diesel fuel and constantly disturbing the soil, try to use living mulches. And we were using living mulches and other things. And so we started experimenting with different kinds of living mulches. So we would cultivate to, after transplant to get the, the fields clean and then go in and put in inter-sown cover crops in between the beds. And we tried a lot of different things over the years, starting with like annual ryegrass and things like that. And then we had a graduate student probably 10 years ago now that um, it, you know, came across this grass. It was a warm season grass from Africa and uh, could take scorching hot heat, which we have in Kentucky in the summer and grew really well and it choked out weeds well. And so we started experimenting around that with that in tomato and pepper and other crops on our CSA. And then we decided, well, let's try this in these mesotunnels. And so then we could have an integrated system where we had insect exclusion and then we had weed control potentially. And we had, you know, kind of starting to really think holistically about how we control pests in this system. So that's what, that's the genesis of it, Mark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a little, that's added a bit to my knowledge too, um, even though we've been working together on it, um, that um, it, it came from this thesis of years ago. See, do you have a good fix on why, why growers weren't using TEF before? Was it just that they didn't know about it? I don't know that, I, I don't know the exact history of when TEF started being sold in the United States. We, we you know, we had a seed uh, supplier that we were using for cover crops, Welter is the company, and we were using a lot of cover crops from them. And I think that's where we originally got it. I think we're still buying it from them. But, you know, we were just trying a bunch of different things and see what could take the heat and it would meet certain criteria, like we could seed it well, we could get germination, it'd give us good weed control without competing for the crop. It had to hit these criteria. And, and TEF just seemed to work really well for us, but it's obscure. Like, like for, for, you know, it's used in, it's, it's, from my understanding, it's, it's a very ancient grain in terms of when we think about, it's one of the earlier crops that was domesticated. And, you know, it, it, it's mainly from Ethiopia and Eritrea. And, you know, it, it's a grain crop there used for, uh, you know, a, a important food, you know, that they eat there in Jira, the bread that's used in Ethiopian food. Hmm. And, and uh, so it's used as a grain crop there. But where my understanding is when it came into the United States, it's as a pasture crop for, for forage. And yeah. so when you see it sold by seed companies, you'll often see it in, in like a forage section or whatever. Hmm. And people are using it for hay or for, uh, you know, a forage crop for livestock. I don't think there's a lot of it, you know, grown for grain here. And so, you know, it's attributes, it grows really well. It's, it's a hot season crop, it's killed. 
in cold weather. So it's not going to overwinter and become a oh. weed, which is an issue with other cover crops, can be an issue with other cover crops. Mm -hmm. So I think it just wasn't on the radar of people because it's this, this kind of a little bit obscure African crop that probably, you know, I don't, I don't know, I'm not a pasture specialist, but maybe there are other pasture crops that are better than it. And maybe, you know, veg people just didn't know about it because it wasn't widely available and it wasn't like on most people's radar as a pasture crop or a cover crop. I see. So when you're trying to, you know, I uh, know we, we're still working with it experimentally, of course, but when you're comparing TEF with uh, other alternatives to use as living mulches in these soil strips between the black plastic rows and cucurbit cultivation, uh, how, how do you, so far, based on what you know, how do you sort of assess its strengths and weaknesses compared to some of these other alternative things that could be seeded? Well, strength-wise, I mean, first and foremost, can it become a weed? And uh, in, we've never seen it become a weed. It's winter kill. We have four seasons in Kentucky. It's absolutely winter kill. As soon as it starts getting cold, it's done for. Uh, so, you know, it, it has to hit that criteria for us because there's never enough time once you get past a certain scale to manage things perfectly. And if something goes to seed and it's going to become a weed, at least in our system, sometimes it does. And so, you know, we have, for instance, it's buckwheat's not a big problem for us, but we have buckwheat that springs up all over the place because there's been times we haven't uh. been able to get out and, and cut the seed head. So it's important for me that we're not creating a potential problem by solving another problem. So one of the criteria is, can it become an escaped weed? And it doesn't seem to do that. The other one is, is it easy to germinate? And I think the jury's still out on that, Mark. I think with a lot of crops, it's not just, you know, that has some attributes, but you got to be able to, to get a good stand establishment. And one of the challenges that we have seen with TEF is it's a very small seed, less than a millimeter. And, you know, we use a coated version of it, nitro coat, it's called, that makes the seed a little bit bigger, a little bit easier to handle. But when you get into these really small seeds, the application technique becomes critical. Now, maybe on small uh, research, not so much, mm -hmm. but if you're going to do this on kind of a more commercial scale, the tools that you use to distribute it to reduce your labor costs become critical. And uh, so, you know, getting a, a good uh, stand density without like wasting money becomes a challenge. And so I think mm -hmm. that, that it works really well when you have water on it, especially if it's hot when you're, when you're seeding it. So I think irrigation becomes important. There's been times we've had to overhead irrigate it when we've gone into real drought periods after we've seeded it. But my understanding is it doesn't like to be buried deeply, like an eighth of an inch is the recommendation uh -huh. you'll normally see on it. And uh -huh. so, you know, if you're, you're a veg grower and you're trying to seed in between beds, if your hand distributing it, maybe you're not getting equal density. So we use a drop uh -huh. push spreader okay. uh, and it's a wide spreader that we use. And then we go in and very, very lightly cultivate it. And if we need water, we'll, we'll, we'll irrigate it. But it's uh -huh. not a, it's not a trouble-free uh, you know, establishment, I don't think compared to some other cover crops. So, I mean, it is a little bit more, you have to be on your game a little bit more to get good stand density, but once it grows, man, it, it grows really well. And I do not, I have not seen research yet that confirms that it's truly allelopathic in terms of secreting things that prevent weed seed uh, germination. But, and so I don't know if it's a density game or it truly is allelopathic, but man, when we get a good density, uh, get good stand density, it's virtually weed free. I mean, it, it, we really have low weed pressure when it grows right. But if it's thin or you don't get good, you know, density, stand density, all bets are off. But, you know, so it's got good attributes in that if you can get it to grow right, it really performs well from a weed control standpoint. You're listening to the Current Cucurbit podcast series. Our three-year project is searching for more profitable 
and less pesticide dependent ways to grow organic eucurbit crops. Now back to our interview. Yeah, so that's a really important point that you mentioned there just a minute ago, Mark, about the sort of the early infancy, right? The the the, the germinating, getting the seed to germinate yeah, and come up, and yeah. once it's once it's up, not very far. It's a pretty tough customer, isn't it? But but getting it up, we have the same issue that if we have a, a dry period after seeding, um, we almost have to supplement to get it up. Yeah, yeah, and you know that's going to be site-specific, seasonal, when, when within a year. I mean, we're, we, uh, you know, in Kentucky, we're definitely seeing more uh, extreme weather events becoming more the norm, you know, and sometimes that we'll get these early droughts and or really high temperatures. But if you can get it up, by and large, it takes heat as, as, as good or better than anything we've seen. And the other, I think, attribute that I like about it, it's not so aggressive that it's going to be highly competitive with the cash crop either. You know, some of these cover crops that we can grow, they'll just take off and, you know, they become a management problem themselves. And so this is why we're getting into this kind of assessing whether, you know, one mowing per season can push it back a little bit so that you have better, you know, crop yield or things like that. That's still yet to be determined the proper management technique on it. But we use it heavily in our CSA fields in tomato and mm. pepper, and we usually do one mowing of it we're not under row covers when we do that. So it's not an issue to, to manage it like that. But if we mow yeah. one time, we can get a, a tremendous, uh, you know, weed efficacy out of it in a, in a plastic system. So we use it a lot in our CSA and we really believe in it. Using it in these mesotunnels is definitely still, you know, figuring out the details on it. Yeah. Okay. You talked about mowing it once, I think. Um, yes. uh, um, and, and so it's, it's a certain amount of trouble to mow. So why do you mow? Yeah, I, and you know, I, I think this is also going to be site and crop specific. But for so, you know, the, this experiment, I think one thing that we did that was important in this experiment was, you know, we chose both, you know, uh, muskmelon and an acorn squash. And that's, you know, these are two crops we've looked at for many years now. And they have different, uh, you know, kind of morphology in the way that they grow, different vining capacity, different vigor to them. And we didn't choose them you know, as these were the be all end all crops or that you can make a fortune in acorn squash, we chose them almost as kind of a, you know, uh, a research tool because they had certain <laughs> attributes to them. And, and that other, if we could get it to work in these crops, other crops could fit in the system. So we've really taken a holistic systems approach to this. I think it's a strength of this research and that we could then feed in other crops into this. So start with very difficult crops and then see what we could do. But those crops, the different morphology or different growth habits on those crops creates a challenge. And what I mean by that, Mark, is, you know, something like an acorn squash that runs a bit, even though we're using a, a cultivar that, that is not quite as aggressive, it'll push over, you know, uh, grass or things like that pretty easily. But, you know, our muskmelons, like we've used Athena a lot over the years, it's not as vigorous. And so if you had a, a really tall, very dense grass crop in between, the, the, the Athena I could see could be inhibited in terms of its vining. And if we think about where the fruit forms on these vines, and you're inhibiting the ends of the vines when you get to anthesis, where you have both male and female flowers, I could see how you could probably have some yield impact on the vine itself, even though it's not affecting the roots or anything, it could be affecting the vines. And so we're still trying to experiment around with this sweet spot of good weed control with a modification to it where you don't inhibit 
uh, vining. And that's going to be crop specific, like I said, but it's something that if we're going to really develop a system that we can stand behind, we need to make it uh, a system that can work across a range of crops. Yeah, I see your point. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, you know, the diversity of responses with crops, but we also have region and we've got three regions involved in this study, uh, Iowa and Kentucky and New York. And, um, you know, the, the climate, obviously soil is different and so forth. Um, one thing we've noticed, and we've been working now with TEF for two years, is that uh, uh, when we did not mow TEF, it started to steal yield away yeah. from the crop next to it. But at least with muskmelon, if we mow it once, uh, just at the beginning of flowering, um, that's what we did last year, then there was really no yield drag. The weed control was practically perfect, like you said, um, because there was enough there. And we didn't get a, a huge amount of regrowth once we, once we mowed it at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, we've we've had two relatively dry years. What would happen in a wetter year is another question yet. Uh, but, um, yeah, there, there's uh, more to be answered there. One of the questions we have is what's the proper timing? Now, we, we've been doing it uh, right at the start of female flower appearance, but should it be done earlier? Should it be done later? Should Should the timing really be guided by the height of the grass rather than what the yeah. crop is doing? Um, those are questions that we, we still have. Um, you know, okay. yeah, go ahead. I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And, you know, these are details to be worked out. But I, I do want to point out to the listeners one thing that I think is important is that, you know, it, it might sound like an esoteric thing to grow cover crops in between plastic in these tunnels and then to go to all this effort to figure out when to mow and how to mow and all of this. But you have to consider here that this is a cropping system. Once you put these covers on, there is no weed management. And, and we've known, if you look at our controls and the experiments, that's not an option. Like in our fields, pigweed or lamb's quarters, I mean, it will major affect the yield of the cash crop, but it will, you know, contribute to your weed seed bank that will impact you for many yes, years. It's not yes. a sustainable system. And so we have to go to these links that are, I would consider a little bit more esoteric compared to <laughs> something because we're looking at this integrated system with these you know, we have to control the insects, so we use the, the, the row cover for the insects, but then that opens up a whole problem with weed control. And so what we're trying to do is an integrated approach. And so, you know, figuring out these details actually matter because there's not great alternatives other than this. You can't let it just go because the weeds will destroy you. So, you know, it, it I think that, that figuring out the timing is important. And for us, one of the factors on the timing is when the vines start to really vine off the plastic. And so if you can get the timing mm. right where you get good stand density in a, in a, in a crop that's past that initiation phase, the, the grass past the initiation phase, where it's really gonna kick in and the cash crop's not vined off so far that you mow over the vines or you try right. to move them in right. the lake, mm -hmm. then I think you can find a sweet spot where you can slow it down a little bit with a mow but it'll it'll continue to have that that kind of you know weed inhibition weed you know impact, but then the cash crop will vine right out over the top of it. That would be the best scenario, and and I think uh, it's possible. We've hit it right a few times where it's worked like that, so I think it's doable. But you know it is going to take a grower who's willing to experiment around to see what works on their farm. But you know I think we've seen some real promising results with this, and I haven't seen anything that works better so far. And we've tried a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Makes me think of a pumpkin grower I saw up in northern Iowa some years ago. This guy was Mennonite grower, and uh, he was putting uh, 
uh, a, a living mulch in between the rows and mowing it at a certain stage, maybe when it was a couple of feet high and he mowed it down to a stubble. But what happened in the fall was that those um, pumpkins matured on top of that stubble and they were a little bit separated from the ground. And I've, I've seen, you know, in a similar place in the state where if you have a wet year uh, at the end of that um, uh, pumpkin production period, you can lose them all from Phytophthora because they're sitting right on the soil. And, and that, that, that stubble sometimes makes the difference. So it's another reason that people don't always um, think of um, that, that it could be beneficial to have that, that properly timed mowing. I wanted to ask you a question that I've always wondered about, Mark, and that is the sort of long-term. You, you alluded to this indirectly, I think, but um, okay, so we think about organic uh, agriculture and organic vegetable growing. Um, there's a, 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 an enormous emphasis placed on soil building and that sort of thing. Um, when you think about, let's say, landscape fabric versus using TEF or something like that, do you see a, do you see a, a long-term positive in um, something like TEF as, as a soil builder? Um, obviously, you're going to rotate away from cucurbits and be something else in there, but, but over the whole scheme of rotations on an on a organic farm, um, is, that a, is that something that growers you know, could or should think about as, as a as a long-term positive? Well, I, I wish I could tell you that the definitive studies have been done to show like a, when a proper rotation with, you know, integrated cover crops in between plastic and a system like this looked, you know, what impact that has on the soil. Because if you recall, we've, we've tried to look at short-term soil impacts or, you know, or a couple yeah. of years at a time. And it's really difficult to see substantial impacts over short yep. term. Yep. But, but logically, having bare ground that you're trying to maintain bare ground through repeat cultivation versus growing a living cover crop that's fairly high biomass that's going to put carbon, sequester carbon into the soil. That just makes sense whether the science says it or not. I mean, that makes sense to me. I will say this, when we use TEF in our CSA fields in things like pepper and tomato, we use them in eggplant sometimes, and we'll even use it in summer squash. We oftentimes mix it with a clover and usually oh. oftentimes a white clover. And so we do a, a, a you know, a two species mix. And at, when we do the mowing late in the season or later in the, in the season when the teff's getting fairly large, you don't see a whole lot of clover. But when we mow that teff, it kind of releases that clover. Oh. And so by the end of the season, the clover is, you know, in the ascendancy as the teff is decreasing. Uh -huh. And so then you start to throw in a legume. And then you start to really think, well, it's not just carbon you're sequestering in the soil. It's not just soil you're preserving in terms of the structure of the soil and roots and all, all the things that are associated with living mulches that are well-documented, but you're adding a legume in there as well. So I think there's lots of room mm. to think about that. But whether the definitive science is done or not, it's pretty clear to me that, that you know, trying to fight Mother Nature to keep bare ground versus using living mulches, that's been documented fairly well. We just haven't per se been able to do it in TEF just yet, but I think logically it, it, it's there. And I would say one more thing, Mark, you know, we have played around with these landscape fabrics mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit in them, but, you know, as researchers, you know, I think it's important for us to think about scale and what we do. And I think that there are some systems that work on smaller scale better than others, especially if we start really looking at labor and, and you know, life cycle analysis and materials and all those kinds of things. And I think landscape fabric is fantastic. And I know there are people that use it on larger scale, but what we've tried to do is look at alternatives for different scales. And I think that by, by you know, kind of what we, we think about is that past a certain point, using living mulches really 
saves you labor. And I think overall, when we think about putting things in the landfills, I mean, there's lots of things to consider here, but mm -hmm. I think we need alternatives in for multiple scales. And I, I think landscape fabric's really great on kind of smaller scale systems, you know? I see. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the bitterest complaints I hear from my graduate student graduate students don't complain a lot, but some of the bitterest complaints <laughs> I hear about are removing yeah. landscape fabric if it's been stapled down because you always wonder, you know, how many staples did I leave behind and they're, they're kind of durable and, if, you know, a mower hits that and it's not very pleasant. So yeah, there, there's some, like you say, there's some. Oh, and just managing it from year to year. If you start going to acres and acres of it, yeah, yeah, the yeah. volume of material oh, you have to manage and especially if it starts <clears> to fray <throat> and all that, or you hit it with a mower or whatever. I mean, there's no, I've learned one thing in, in my time in organic farming and just agriculture in general, there's nothing perfect it's not a, <laughs> it's not a natural system to start with no 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 everything I, I view everything from strengths and weaknesses you know yep 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 and and and, and as you pointed out some of the uh, in the case of TEF some of the um optimization is still to be done i mean we're, we're we're in a pioneering phase here working with a uh i guess you call it a rediscovered grass yeah, yeah. Uh, at least from the standpoint of our agriculture and um organic agriculture so yeah it's, it's an exciting time to be working with this yeah um, um any any other any other words of wisdom for uh growers because they're they're the ones listening to this mainly uh, uh concerning uh the use of the living mulches in this kind of mesotunnel systems well i guess you know We've been, Mark, uh, we've been working together quite a long time on this cucurbit situation. And, uh, you know, TEF came in at some point, I think maybe a little bit earlier in Kentucky than with you all. And so mm -hmm. I started, you know, we, we do a lot of on-farm, uh, you know, programming prior to COVID uh, with growers. And, you know, I've, I've done lots of farmer trainings and lots of things like that and CSA boot camps and all that. And then I've given lots of talks kind of nationally. I, so I, I've, I have shared our experience with TEF to many people. Mm -hmm. And I have had growers that have come back to me over the years and say, you know, we started using that TEF based on what we saw or based on what you presented and maybe not in the mesotunnels, but in, in, in just general plastic culture. Mm -hmm. And I've had lots of positive feedback from farmers uh, on uh -huh. it. And so I feel confident that it is a good crop for, uh -huh. uh, you know, plastic culture system, maybe even some other, you know, non-plastic culture systems, but I'm confident it works in that. So where I think what we're left with now, Mark, is really figuring out how to use it in this mesotunnel system in an integrated pest management strategy. And I, it's, so I think fundamentally it will work. It's figuring out the details to make it fit this particular system is where we're at right now. And so I'm confident that, that you know, we can, we can get to that conclusion. It's just, you know, this is why we do research and, you know, so farmers don't have to do it themselves. So we can, we can yeah. take the risk. Yeah. I remember you saying that when we got into mesotunnels that, you got the idea from that from growers and oftentimes uh you know sometimes we'll we're pulling the cart and sometimes the growers are pulling the cart in terms of new ideas and uh so but we're we're filling in some some missing gaps i think and, and you know trying to optimize the system yeah well i think a strength of research and what we can do is you know through through funding we can try multiple different things simultaneously and over a couple of years we try lots of different things and figure out what works best whereas farmers it's it's a little bit harder to do that and i think the best outcomes are when we like we have emphasized over the years is working with farmers. So we have yeah. some of these system components that are from us, some from farmers and we put them together and then farmers try them and they give us feedback and they say, you should try this because there's, you know, oftentimes the really good ones are such great kind of experimentalists in their minds anyway. And so creative and, that's, yes. when this, that's when this system works the best is when we yeah. have a two-way interaction. Absolutely. You know, with our cooperators on this project and advisory panel people, 
some of the biggest swerves and changes we've done in the project came right out of ideas that they were showing us that, that we modified our, our procedures based on stuff they were already trying. And so, um, uh, yeah, sometimes they're catching up to us and sometimes we're catching up to them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's, those are the really the best, the, the most rewarding projects, I think, when there's like, they, they see something that, that we can't see because we get stuck in our research mindset sometimes <laughs> and there's a practical side they bring to it that is, that is so, I, I think, you know, complimentary uh, at best with, with the, the, the team, you know. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, well, we've been talking to uh, Dr. Mark Williams, who is the as uh, a professor in the chair of the Department of Horticulture at uh, University of Kentucky. Really appreciate your time, Mark. This has been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Current Cucurbit podcast series. I'm the host, Mark Leeson. Jose Gonzalez is the sound editor. The Current Cucurbit podcast series is funded by a grant from USDA's Organic Research and Extension Initiative. For more information about the three-state project, contact Mark Gleason at mgleason at iastate.edu in Iowa, Sarah Pethybridge, sjp277 at cornell.edu in New York, or David Gonthier, djgo227 at g.uky.edu in Kentucky.